This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. So for Taisho today, I thought we would take up a case and and then look at it together, getting anybody's thoughts about um, what they hear, uh, given that we have some time at the end. And the case goes like this. One day, Shui Feng said to the assembly, what, are you ta- what we're talking about is like a rice field. It is dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. Do not miss receiving this gift. His student, Shuangsha, said, Then what is the rice field itself? Shui Feng said, Look! Shuangsha said, Although what you say is correct, I wouldn't say it that way. Shui Feng said, then how would you say it? Shuang Sa said, one by one, each and every person. This is from Master Dogen's collection of 300 cases, 300 koan shobogenzo. I heard this case by a, commented on by a teacher recently. So it struck me after our work day. We had our Samu work day two Saturdays ago. We stuffed all the cushions, as some of you may be feeling right now. More plump. More able to support us. So, work is an essential part of practice. It's an essential part of Zen training. And Although we don't grow our own rice, um, we do work to support ourselves. We we work to support our families. We work to support our communities, the community here. And it's a good reminder that practice is really nothing other than how we move through the world, how we interact with others, how we approach each task. It's also a reminder that there is no practice or realization outside of the world that we inhabit. To try to escape the world is not Zen practice. This this kind of um, this approach to meditation practice was really cemented by the great um, um, Hyakujo, or uh, his Chinese name, Pai Chang, who was an early Zen master in China. And he was responsible for creating the monastic rules as we know them even today, as they're practiced in China and Japan 
than Korea to some extent. And these rules included the importance of oscillating back and forth between isolated periods of training and more engaged practice in the world, back and forth. And some of you who are familiar with Hyakujo, you'll recall this, that even when he was quite old, uh, he insisted on working out in the fields. And his students, being quite concerned for his health, tried to hide his tools from him. And so, in response, he stopped eating. And that's where we, he, we, we get his famous admonition, a day of no work is a day of no eating. A day of no work is a day of no eating. When I, when I look at my own Zen training, coming to, as a young man to the Zen Center, I, I had the seeds of a work ethic, but yet had no experience in how to apply that. It wasn't uncommon for, for me to get corrected, for, well, for, for everybody to get corrected in how they approached work. And I was on the receiving end more than a few times. And as I was thinking back about that time, my reactions to those corrections, um, I'm not very proud of. Internal reactions. But as I look back now, I recognize that part of my difficulty in uh, during that time was that, very simply, I was selfish. I was selfish with my time. Um, and I was consumed with getting by with the bare minimum. The bare minimum that needed to be done. But sticking with it, I can now say that um, there were moments that really began to change that and one was being put in charge of the carpentry department at the Zen Center. It was a big place so they had departments. And also being put into the gardening work. And through those tasks I learned somehow to lose myself in the work. And I noticed that over time, this spread to more and more areas. It's not simply of the things I enjoyed, like carpentry or gardening, but more and more of the things that I wasn't so fond of. And so I began to see practice as something much broader than um, seated meditation. This practice is only as good as it can be applied in our life. In other words, our practice has to function. It has to live. 
how is it that we are in the world? How do we carry this mind of sitting practice, this mind of zazen into our daily life? Do we? Do we carry that into our daily life? So Shui Fang says, what we're talking about is like a rice field. It is dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. You often hear metaphors like this in practice, but we should be clear, what is he referring to when he says it is like a rice field? What we're talking about is like a rice field. This is one of the first points in working on this case as a koan, is what is Shui Feng referring to when he says what we're talking about is like a rice field? Well, what is like a rice field? Is it our sitting practice? Is it, um, is it awakening? Is that like a rice field? Uh, Buddha nature? What's like a rice field? The only clue that I would offer is not to look too far from where you're sitting. Uh, The old phrase, uh, what's closest to us is often hardest to see, comes up. He says it's dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. One thing that we learn to see more and more clearly the longer we practice is the teaching of dependent co-arising. The classic image that the Buddha used when he taught dependent co-arising was the image of two sheaths of wheat in a field leaning up against each other. That if you take one sheath of wheat away, the other one falls. And he said, the Buddha said, because of this, there is that Without this, there isn't that. This is dependent co-arising. And so when we apply this to our life, we see that our own existence is so complex. It is so entwined. In fact, it actually is nothing but the entwining of causes and conditions the convergence of forces, of conditions that are manifesting in this particular time. We also, in this teaching, begin to recognize that it's really impossible to comprehend cause and effect. We're all being created moment by moment by all of the, enforce, the all of the forces that we encounter and those forces are subject and dependent upon other forces 
And those forces are subject upon other forces. You see how complicated our own existence really is. We see that through this teaching that although things appear straightforward, they're actually not. They're an endless chain of events, one behind the other. So in this practice of dependent co-arising, we get humbled by this if we take it seriously. We see that the same is true not of just our own existence, how complex it is, but of other people as well. That we can't possibly comprehend the forces and the complexity of another person. And the minute we try to do that, we do them a disservice. We can't possibly understand the decisions that somebody makes. This kind of realization, if we really embody and practice it, can help us. It can help us stay open and not reify people, not pigeonhole people. Especially when people do and say things that we don't agree with. We also see that because of this dependent nature of ours, that there is no self-identity apart from anything else. And so we develop a new perspective about ourselves and the world. We begin to comprehend when the Buddha said, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. At the same time that we're individuals manifesting in this room, listening, breathing, at the same time our existence is not limited to this. And yet we tend to do that. We tend to limit each other. What we know about their person, what we know about their history, if we just investigate them enough, we'll find out who they are. But if we do this, we really ignore the core teaching of the Buddha. Well, you could say, well, what else are we supposed to do? Right? We are limited to our senses. We are limited to our intellects, our minds. And this is true. But to acknowledge that we can't comprehend the complexity of a situation is where we actually practice. We also recognize through the teaching of dependent arising all the ways that when we seek happiness, 
all the ways, all those ways are dependent on certain conditions being met. How much time we spend pursuing conditioned mind states. This is a good practice to take up. For example, at some point, we realize we can't take that quietude that we find in retreat or in, you know, in the zendo. We can't take that with us as much as we'd like to. Because we can't stay in that state of mind because it's dependent upon the certain conditions that are being met at the time. Everything we pursue is dependent upon particular conditions being met, and those conditions constantly change. So you can see how when, how does the line go? When Shui Feng says, what we're talking about is like a rice field. It's dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. This word dependent upon is so important. <clears throat> we can we can see this practice of zazen as like a rice field. How do we tend this field? Well, one, one thing that came up for me when examining this case was how physical this analogy is of planting and plowing. And practice is an active practice, believe it or not. It's not a practice of stillness. It's a physical practice. In other words, it takes time and energy to show up week after week to the zendo, to show up at home onto our mats, to sit down and cross our legs, to light a stick of incense, to make the commitment to come to retreat when we have so many other things we could do. It takes effort, just like cultivating a rice field. I imagine, I've never cultivated a rice field, but I imagine that you just can't ignore it. It takes effort. And so we all must tend to the conditions that support our sitting practice, especially given the fact that most of us have people in our lives and relationships that are outside of our practice, or so so, so seeming, uh, they seem like they are. That many of our coworkers or family members don't understand or support our sitting practice. So it's difficult to get those seeds of practice to 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 grow. It takes a tremendous amount of patience. These old masters, like Shui uh, Feng or Pai Cheng, they were literally growing their own rice. They didn't get it from the grocery store. And I imagine that they were much more in touch with the cycle of nature than we are. Much more 
in touch with what it takes to make something grow. The patience and effort that it takes. So the koan goes on. What we're talking about is like a rice field. It's dependent upon the people plowing the fields and planting the seeds. Do not miss receiving this gift. What is the gift that Shui Feng is pointing to? This is the whole basis of what practice is trying to get us to see. The gifts that we constantly miss. I've mentioned this before. Um, It's like if I told you that I put a million dollars in your house this morning. I swear it's there. Are you a millionaire? If you don't know where it is? And I can guarantee to you that you would put the effort into finding that. (laughs) You would probably be jackhammering your basement floor looking for that million dollars. The gift. What is the gift that Zen practice offers us? Well, for one, you know, thinking about work. This... This gift is that I received through residential training was the gift of slowing down, not to rush through things. Because when we rush through things, we are not present. And so we miss out on what's here. Off to the next thing. And you can often see this when people work. You can see their minds. Literally. Because one shoe is here, one shoe's over there. Then, then you can see where they left the broom out, and then you can see where the dishes are not done in the sink, and then you can see, you know, this kind of trail. And this is really, you can almost see their thoughts. How distracted we get. And so we miss the gift because we're always off to the next thing. I told the guys in residence here that uh, I won't mention who, but my work supervisor, one of my work supervisors where I lived at the Zen Center, if you left things out, you would quickly find them in your bed. It was, you know, they gave you, he gave you three or four chances. But then, if you still left something out, you'd find it waiting for you in your bed. It was a good teaching. A little cruel, but a good teaching. What is this gift he's talking about? These days, you could also, you could, you could think of the gift of the practice itself. You know, these, these days, there's so many paths that someone can take. 
There's so many things that we can do with our time. Traditionally, Zen practice is thought of as rare to come across. The image is used of a sea turtle that surfaces every hundred years. And when that turtle surfaces, it sticks its head through an inner tube that happens to be passing by on the ocean. This is how rare encountering the Dharma is said to be in this human life. Whether that's true or not with the internet, I don't know anymore. I think it's much more common. But to take up a path and stick with it, I would say, is a rare gift. Which brings us to the next line of the koan. Then what is this rice field itself, Shuangsa says. And Shui Feng said, look! He gets right down to the point. What is this field? He wants to know. Enough with metaphors. You know, what is the rice field? Zen, Zen, you know, may use metaphor, but you can be sure that when you hear something like, it is like a rice field, it's more than a metaphor. So Shuang Sas, he just brushes it aside. He says, okay, so what is this rice field? Let's get down to it. And Shui Feng says, look. Look. Direct. Look directly. Look directly. Look. Look directly. If anything, you could say that Zen is direct. Some people, they encounter Buddhism and they think, well, and in fact, I just got an email again. I get these every week to the info at zencenter.org email address from different um, religious groups. And this one, again, was comparing Christianity to Zen practice about how much better Christianity was and how I should repent and come to the light. And one of the arguments was that Buddhism is pessimistic, that it's all about suffering while Christianity is all about joy, right? Buddhism is not, in Zen, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic. It just says, look, look at your life directly. It's not easy (laughs) to do that, it's not easy to, to look into what we don't want to see, the, the truth of what is, of the shortcomings that we deal with. It's not easy. It's easy to brush them aside, to cover them up, to make excuses, to, but it's, but it's necessary. Shui Feng is asking us to look at our life. Look at what's present. This, um, when I read this, have you guys heard of this this story of of the journey of Captain Cook? 
um, apparently there was a botanist on board who left some diaries and um, his name was Joseph Banks and when they took their 17, um, 1770 voyage to um, off the coast of Australia this, this diary, this botanist commented that the natives per- paid virtually no attention to this huge ship this this yeah yeah this huge a hundred and some foot long ship that was a quarter mile off the the coast and they're just working and barely raised their heads from what they were doing it's not like you couldn't see this thing it was a monstrosity and he, he said they seemed to be totally engaged in what they were about. And so some people have speculated that perhaps they couldn't even see it. It was so outside their worldview, yeah. you know, so outside of their norm that they couldn't see it. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, <laughs> but it's kind of a cool idea anyway. And it really does have a truth in it that we can have these monstrosities appear right in front of us. And we can't even, we don't even see it. We don't even see it. This dharma, this enlightenment that we're seeking, this truth, this awakening, this, this practice is right here. Shui Fang is saying, look! But here's the key. He doesn't say what to look at. He doesn't say, look at that, there. He says, look, what is it like when you look and you don't focus on anything in particular? Look. Look. It's wide open. you get a sense that in in that way, when you look in that way, you get a sense of your own limitlessness, don't you? Okay, Shuangsa says, well, although that what you say is correct, I wouldn't say it that way. So Shui Feng says, well, then how would you say it? And Shuangsa says, one by one, each and every person. Do you see what each one of these guys is doing? Shui Feng says, look, wide, open, everything. Shuangsa says, no, this cup. You over there. The candle. Each particular thing is the whole. Because it's easy to say that all things are one. It's easy to put on that spiritual mm, baloney of it's all just one. Right? And so we have to come back to the particulars, the manifestation of this practice in this moment. 
So everything, you know, we use this analogy in practice that we have to climb the mountain, but we also have to come back down. When we climb the mountain, we see a certain perspective. We see that how small, how insignificant everything looks, how it puts everything perspective in a certain way. And yet, when we come back down, we have a different perspective. So this is what Shuangsha is reminding us. Come back down the mountain. One by one, each and every person.